Well, this morning we are continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians. We, again, we find ourselves here at Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 15 through to verse 23. And what we're going to see in today's passage, they are Paul's words of thanksgiving and prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. That's what we see. Paul's words of thanksgiving and prayer for the Christians in Ephesus. Now, what's interesting is that Verse 15, right through until verse 23, they're actually one long sentence in the original language. This is interesting. It's made up of 169 words. And if you've been around for the last few Sundays, you'll know that this is not the first time that Paul has done this. You'll know that from verse 3 right down to verse 14, where we left off last week, we know that is one long sentence in the original Greek language as well. Which means for us that when we look at Ephesians chapter 1, when we look at verse 3, right through to the end of verse 23, in the original language, that is only two sentences. Two sentences to take almost virtually an entire chapter. Which to a grammar teacher is an absolute nightmare, but to us, the believers who he is writing to, including you and I today, these two sentences... These two sentences are packed. These two sentences are packed. They're an edifying masterpiece which really communicate to us the goodness and the grace of God. Now, in case you're wondering, there is a connection. There is a connection between verses 3 to 14, what we've looked at in previous weeks, and verses 15 to 23. And the reason that we know that there's a connection between these two sentences in the original language, the reason that we know there's two, that there's a connection here is because of Paul's use of the word therefore in verse 15. You might have seen it there. That's how he begins the verse. He says, therefore. In other words, what Paul is saying in, in today's passage, it's based upon and in connection with what it is that he has talked about in the verses leading up to this, verses 3 to 14. And so probably right from the start, it's worth us asking the question, well, what is the connection? What is the connection that Paul is making? What is the connection that he has said in the the previous passage that he now wants to communicate in today's passage? Well, we know in verses 3 to 14 that Paul worked very, very hard. He worked very hard leading up to today's passage to write a, a heartfelt expression of praise to God. Praise to the triune God and, and, uh, for the way that the Godhead has worked together and is working together to bring about our salvation. We saw in the passage leading up to today that we have been purposed by the Father, we have been purchased by the Son, and that we are being preserved by the Holy Spirit. He's explained to us that as believers, we have been blessed with every single spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, there is no good thing that God has for us as believers that has not already been made available to us in Christ. We have been elected. We have been predestined. We have been adopted into God's family. We have been given the grace to pursue holiness and, and Christ-likeness. We, we have received redemption. We have received forgiveness. We have been given spiritual insight into the, the mystery of God's will. We have been sealed by God's sealed as God's possession, as we saw last week, by the Holy Spirit, acting as a down payment, giving us certainty, giving us assurance for the future. These are tremendous truths. 
These are heartwarming truths, a heartfelt expression of praise to the triune God and how it is that he has worked salvation into our lives. This is the thrust of what Paul has just written in verses 3 to 14. As we read through verses 3 to 14, it's almost like Paul is bursting at the seams, you know, almost like one of those kids that's just been and, you know, they've gone for an outing somewhere and they've bought a bag of lollies or something. They can't wait to get home and tell the rest of their brothers and sisters or tell mum and dad what they've been up to and just bursting at the seams with excitement and and thanksgiving. And and this is what we kind of see Paul leading up to today's passage. He's bursting at the seams. He's wanting to unload all of these deep and heartwarming truths about God's work of salvation within our lives. But then when he gets to verse 15, beginning of today's passage, When he gets to 15, it's almost like Paul gets to a point where he recognises that there are just not enough words. There are just not enough words to try to describe and to communicate the tremendous blessings which God has bestowed upon the believer. And it's for this reason that Paul realises there comes a time when words can only go so far. They can only take it so far. And that what we really need, what we really need in addition to the words, well... We need for God to bring to light these truths in a way that only God can do. Yes, we can read through the verses that we've looked at in previous weeks. And at a surface glance, absolutely, we can, we can comprehend it, can't we? We can have appreciation for the, the certain truths that we've seen in, in, in verses 3 to 14. We can, we can see that and we can appreciate them to a certain degree. But it's like here, Paul is wanting our understanding to go beyond just a surface level. Instead, he wants to call upon God's help to bring our understanding, to bring our thoughts into a deeper, more complete understanding. Because notice it there in your Bibles. Notice how Paul begins in verse 15. He says there in verse 15, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, what is he saying there? He's saying that he had heard about the fruits of true conversion in these believers' lives. He heard that their faith was accompanied by love for other Christians. The fruit of love was present. But then he goes on in verse 16 to say, I do not cease to pray uh, to, to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So notice what he's saying there. He's praying now for these believers. And this is really where we come to it. This is where we come to the point where, where Paul is about ready to call from help from above. And this is the point where Paul is going to petition. He's going to intercede for these believers through prayer. Because then notice in verse 17, notice the substance. Notice the substance of what it is that Paul wants to pray for these believers. Notice what Paul is asking for God to do in the lives of these believers. He says it. Look at it in your Bibles here. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Do we see what Paul is asking of God? Do we see what he is saying? He's asking that God would give to us as believers an increasing grasp, an increasing comprehension of the full extent of who God is and what God has done for us. Now, it's important to note that when Paul prays that we should be given the, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, he's not saying that there's some secondary blessing. He's not sort of saying that there's, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit has not yet come to the believers that he's talking to. 
After all, we know elsewhere in Scripture that believers already possess the Holy Spirit, right? We know elsewhere from Scripture that our bodies are already a temple of the Holy Spirit for those who believe. We saw in verses 13 and 14 last week that, that, that upon believing, upon trusting Christ, that, that, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so Paul is not saying, hey, you know what? There is something more from the outside that needs to come in. What's more, Christ, as we know, that in Christ, every spiritual blessing has already been granted to us as believers. But what Paul means when he uses the phrase, the spirit of revelation and knowledge, what he's talking about is somewhat of a disposition. He's talking about a frame of mind. He is asking for the illuminating work of God to take the truths which have already been communicated, which have already been revealed, and to impress them deeply upon our hearts as believers. It's kind of like one of those dimmer switches you can kind of get in your house sometimes. Have any of you got some of those ones? The ones that can, can turn the light up and turn it down. You can sort of dim it, you know, a bit of mood lighting, you know, having an at-home date with your wife and, you know, turn it down a little bit. And you can turn it up if you want to do some reading. It's kind, of like, it's kind of like one of those little dimmer lights that we have in some of our houses sometimes. You know, those little dimmer switches. I mean, when you're, if you're sitting at home and you're trying to read a book in the dark, you're not going to get too far, are you? It's going to be quite tiresome. It's going to be kind of difficult for us. But then if someone turns on one of those little dimmer lights, even if one of those little dimmer lights, even if the dimmer is turned right down low, well, you recognize, hey, at least I'm better off than I, than I was. I'm better off than having no light at all. At least I can see something. I can see better than what I did. And in a similar way, Paul, what Paul has explained in verses 3 to 14, it's like someone who's just kind of turned on the dimmer light. We're able to see these truths better than what we once did. And to be honest, sometimes for us as Christians, sometimes we can be content with that. You know, we get a little bit of light. A little bit of light has been given. A little bit of insight into what the scriptures teach about God and about salvation. And we're kind of content there. Good. I'm fine. I can carry on. The dimmer light's been turned on, even though it's been turned on down low. But what Paul has wanted to communicate here is that there is still a lot more light available to us. There is still a lot more illumination which is available to us to be able to see things even more clearly than what we may have once done. It's like Paul is saying here, hey, the little dimmer light is turned down low, but I want things in your understanding to become increasingly brighter. I want to get that little dimmer switch and I want to start turning that thing up. However, He realizes the limitations of himself doing that. He has communicated truths through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But now he realizes, I need help from above. I need God to do a work in their minds and in their hearts based upon the revealed truth which I have just revealed to them. It is God who is the one that turns the dial. It is God the one who increases the brightness and the clarity in our thinking as believers. Or as he says it, notice it again there in verse 17. This is his prayer, right? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Gives the idea of illumination, turning on the light, shedding light on what is already there. Now, as we're going to see in verse now, verses 18 to 23, there are three things that Paul prays for. 
The overarching thing is that their eyes or their understanding would be illuminated, that their understanding would be more enlightened to the truth that he's just talked about. But there are three main areas in which Paul intercedes for these Ephesians, for believers. Three areas that he's asking that God would give to us as believers greater light, greater illumination. And this kind of forms the outline now for the rest of our study. Paul prays, firstly in verse 18, that we would better understand the greatness of God's plan. That's number one. The second thing he prays for, verses 19 to 20, the greatness that we would have more light, better understand the greatness of God's power. And thirdly, he prays that we would better understand the greatness of God's person. That's verses 21 to 23. This is, the, this is how Paul's prayer unfolds in the passage that we're looking at. The greatness of God's plan, the greatness of God's power, the greatness of God's person, calling on help from above, help these truths infuse into our hearts and into our minds in a way that only God himself can do. And so let's give our attention now, <clears throat> partway through verse 18. And this is where Paul picks up. He's praying for, for greater light, better understanding in the greatness of of God's plan. Notice how Paul puts it there, verse 18. If you give your attention to your Bibles there, he says, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The greatness of God's plan. Now, of course, the first outstanding truth that kind of we can kind of draw from this part of verse 18, the first outstanding truth is that it's actually possible. It's actually possible for us as believers to to grow and to better understand the greatness of God's plan. If it wasn't so, well, then Paul wouldn't have prayed for this, would he? He wasn't just praying meaningless prayers, but under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he is praying for something that is very possible. Something which we are able to grow in, to be enlightened in further and further. However... We know this is not true for everyone, don't we? It's not true for everyone to be able to grow in this sort of understanding. Not everyone can grasp the greatness of God's word, the greatness of God's plan, simply because they do not have the spiritual faculties in which to do so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul explains it in this way. He says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's kind of like people who are born with a musical sense. You have some people who are born with a musical sense, some who are not. Now, the person who is not born with a musical sense, perhaps they're tone deaf. It doesn't matter you know, what, what, what key you're singing in. They can never really find that note. Well, it doesn't matter how much musical instruction you give that person doesn't matter how much musical instruction they receive. Sure, they might get a little bit better than they were, but, well, they're never going to become an accomplished musician. On the other hand, a person who is born with a musical sense, although they may, that, that musical sense might remain dormant, not being used, not being fed, well, <clears throat> we know that as soon as a person begins to receive instruction, as soon as that person begins to practice, we know that that person's ability will begin to increase simply because that musical sense is already there to begin with. It is something that they are born with. And in a similar way, without being born again of the Spirit of God, a person cannot grasp the things of a spiritual nature. You can try to teach them. You can try to instruct them. 
but you won't see them grow. You won't see a progression in their understanding because their spiritual sense is absent. And that is why Jesus emphasized in John chapter 3 that in order for a person to even see the kingdom of God, in order to even be able to view and consider the things of a spiritual nature, well, they first must be born again. They must be born of the Spirit in order to receive understanding about things of a spiritual nature. So that when Paul prays in verse 18 that the eyes of our, uh, eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, he's doing so knowing that for the believer, the raw materials are already present in our lives. That, that, that dynamic, the, the, the spiritual dynamic, that spiritual awakening is, is already present. As believers, we have been born of the Spirit of God and therefore we have what it takes. We have the capacity to be able to comprehend more and more of what God's plan is, of what God's word has to say. But notice in verse 18 now, there are two specific areas of God's plan. Two specific areas of God's plan where Paul prays that we would be further enlightened. What is the first one? So he's speaking, he's praying for those who already have the spiritual faculties, those who already have that dynamic that's already there, able to be able to understand more and more spiritual truths, two things that he he asks for further enlightenment for these believers. Firstly, notice in verse 18, firstly, he prays that we would know what is the hope of his calling. Did you notice it there in your Bibles, verse 18? That's the first thing that he prays for. What Paul prays for here is that we would have an expanded awareness of the full implications of God's calling within our lives. We'd have an increasing awareness of the the full implications of God's calling within our lives. Now, of course, we have to go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where it talks about the calling of God in this way. It says, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us as, adoption, uh, as to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. The hope of our calling is that our salvation has been carefully planned, carefully calculated, carefully executed, carefully drawn, um, unfolded out, Carefully planned by God himself. That is the hope of our calling. It's been planned by God. The hope of our calling is that we can progressively change to become more like Jesus by the grace of God. Also, the hope of our calling is that God has now made us part of his family. That's where the adoption part comes in. Both now and for eternity, we are part of the family of God. And so it's worth us asking the question, well, why? Why is this important? Why is it important for us to have an increasing understanding of the hope of our calling? Why is it that Paul would pray that we would have an expanded awareness of the full implications of God's calling within our lives? Well, the answer is quite simple. It's so that we can walk worthy of that calling. That we would live in a way that is fitting in light of that calling. Paul says this in in chapter 4 and verse 1 of Ephesians. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. It's an increasing awareness of saying, you know what? What is the hope of my calling 
So that with that increased awareness, we can do something with that. That it will affect our lives in the here and the now. It's not just a, a theological thought, but it's a, it's a, a truthful dynamic that would, would overturn our lives and, and change the course in which we are going. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he speaks about this. We see a similar thought. He talks about how the calling of God has affected his life in the present. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 14, uh, 13 and 14, he says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal to the prize of the what? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He counted all of his life before conversion as rubbish. Oh, I'll push it to one side. I'm forgetting those things. The things that I was pursuing, it has no, no, no relevance in, in terms of where I should be headed now that I understand this God, now that I understand that I've been called by him, that I've been saved by him, that I've been received so much grace bestowed upon myself from him. You see, as we better grasp the secure hope that we have for our future, the more it will affect our lives and the way in which we live in the here and the now. But in addition to knowing what is the hope of our calling, well, there is a second specific area of God's plan that Paul prays for further enlightenment. It's also found in verse 18. Notice it there in your Bibles, the last part of verse 18. So in addition to understanding the hope of our calling, he says that we praise that we would know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, this is an interesting idea, isn't it? It's an interesting idea. It's an idea which we touched on several weeks ago. Because usually, when we talk about inheritance, especially when we talk about spiritual inheritance, well, we usually talk about the inheritance that we have in God. When we think about inheritance, what immediately comes to mind for the believer? It comes to, you know, the first Peter kind of, first Peter 1 experience, it's the inheritance of heaven. That's what we think about, right? Something that has been given to us. Whereas what Paul talks about here is not about the inheritance that we have in God, but it talks about God's inheritance in us. In us. Meaning that we are God's inheritance. Now I realize at first this can sometimes sound a bit bizarre. This sounds a little bit puzzling to our ears, doesn't it? After all, we think to ourselves of inheritance as, as some great gain. You know, when the inheritance comes, you know, that's payday. You know, that's, that's going to be some great gain that I'm going to receive at a future time. And so when we hear that we are God's inheritance, we're left wondering, and the question is asked in our thinking, well, what great gain is God going to have by inheriting me? I mean, what is he going to get from that? Oh, oh great, my inheritance. Jason. You don't laugh too loud. You put your name in there too. You're part of it too. What, what, what great gain is that? Here I am, the, 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 the God who needs nothing, the God who is self-sustained and, and completely content within himself. What gain can he get from inheriting me? Well, I think the key is found in the words leading up to that passage in verse 18. In verse 18, it talks about the riches of the glory. That's the key. In other words, the inheritance that God will one day receive because of us, we being his inheritance, is the glory that God will receive as a result. In other words, 
when we get to heaven one day, people will look at us, angels will be looking upon us, and they'll be thinking to themselves, how undeserving these people are to spend an eternity with God. They'll look at God, they'll look at us, scratch their head, but then they'll see what's in between. They'll see the cross. They'll see the means by which people like us can spend an eternity with a good and perfect and holy God. And at that point, they will marvel at God's grace. They'll marvel at the grace that has been bestowed upon, upon me and upon you. And so, in that sense, we can understand how God can consider us his inheritance. Because for all eternity, we will be the trophies of God's grace that will bring much glory and much fame to his name. And what a comforting thought that is, isn't it? Is that not a comforting? I mean, it's a humbling thought, isn't it? You know, if you're humble there, you're, inher- you're God's inheritance. It's a humbling thought, but isn't it a, a, a comforting thought? Because think about this. If, if God sees us as his inheritance, which he has purposed to bring much glory to his name, well, we can be sure that he's going to protect his inheritance. We, we, we can be sure that he's going to make sure that his inheritance doesn't get snatched away, but that his inheritance remains intact. What a confidence we can have. After all, we know what great lengths people will go to in an earthly sense to protect their earthly inheritance, don't we? They'll go to great lengths to do that. Well, how much more will God protect and sustain us knowing that we are reserved by him as his eternal inheritance? The ones who will bring much glory to his name, his grace, his goodness, his mercy. We can kind of understand why when Jesus says, you know, all that the Father gives me will come to me and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. In order for Satan or any other forces to to snatch us out of God's hand as believers would be like robbing God of his inheritance. And I can tell you one thing. God's not going to let anyone rob his inheritance. His, his glory is, is, is focused on, on us and, our, and, our, and coming to faith and relationship with him. And so this certainly gives us confidence. Well, moving on from the greatness of God's plan, we see next in verses 19 to 20 that... <clears throat> The second main idea which Paul asks God to give a greater illumination, greater light to, he prays that we would better understand the greatness of God's power. That's the second thing. Because notice how he puts it, picking up in verse 19, he says, and, so in addition to the greatness of God's plan, his calling for us, his inheritance found in us, he now goes on to talk about the greatness of God's power. And he says in verse 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places? Now, do we see what Paul is saying here? Do we see what Paul is is praying for here? Do we see what he's getting at here? He wants for us as believers, he wants for us to be presently aware of God's great power, which is actively at work within our lives. He wants us to be aware of God's power, which is actively uh, actively at work within our lives. That's what he means, the exceeding greatness of his power that works toward us who believes. He wants us to understand that the same power 
You want to remember how much power of God is in our lives right now? Well, notice he likens it there. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power which is working presently within our lives. Now, I think this is sometimes something that we can overlook, isn't it? The truth here is that if you are a believer, you have God's power working in some way, to some degree, within your life right now. And I think that sometimes we can overlook this truth. We can kind of get used to the believers in our lives and we can think that the way that they are now is the way that they've always been. Yeah, Jason and Nikos and, you know, Toma, you know, Sam, you know, just, you see people and you just go, it's just the way that they've always been. Sometimes we can forget that we were once spiritually dead, that we were once spiritually cut off from God because of our sin, but that God raised us up spiritually. Sometimes we can forget that what our lives used to, used to look like before God entered into our lives and powerfully transformed us into new creations. Sometimes we can forget that. As we look at our lives and as we look at the lives of believers around us, it is good for us to recognize that we are not the same people that we used to be by the grace of God. As we look at our lives now and as we consider the things that we are now doing, as we look at our lives now and as we consider the things that we are thinking and how we, our, our whole outlook on life and, and what it is, the direction that we are going in, it is an undeniable reality that there are supernatural changes that have taken place in our lives and that are taking place in our lives right here, right now. We are not the same people that we used to be 10 years ago by God's power and by the grace of God. I mean, we're not the same people that we used to be five years ago, according to God's power and the grace of God. In fact, if we even think about a year ago, think about the sort of person that you were last year. And for the believers among us here today, you will know that you are not the same person that you used to be even a year ago, according to God's power and by the grace of God. This is the truth that Paul wants us to have a greater understanding of, that God is actively present in our lives. He prays that we would live with a greater realization that God's power is actively there, that he's doing stuff in in the lives of other believers around us as well. It's good for us to ponder on this. It's good for us to be reminded of this. God is at work among us. He is at work among us. When the church gathers together, When believers gather together, it should be a time where we recognize the power of God. As we journey with people in the context of the local church, and as we see people's lives changing progressively over a period of time, it's like Paul is saying, recognize that. God's power working in you, working in me. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is right there present within our lives right now. Well, moving on from the greatness of God's power, illuminating the greatness of God's power, recognizing the greatness of God's power in our lives as believers. Well, we see next in verses, and finally, verses 21 to 23, there's a third main reason in which Paul asks to God for greater illumination. In verses 21 to 23, he prays that we would better understand the greatness of God's person. And more specifically, that we would better understand 
the greatness of God's person in God the Son, in Jesus Christ. Now, in speaking of Jesus, notice that Paul picks up in verse 21, kind of an expansion from the thought that he, he, he was talking about in verse 20. But notice that he says there, of Jesus, that he is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, what a tremendous way to end a prayer. What a tremendous way to end a prayer. What is Paul saying here? Well, he is saying that the one who has given us the hope of our calling, the one who considers us to be his inheritance, that the one who is powerfully at work in our lives within the present is also the one who is the supreme authority of the universe. Paul is reminding us that Jesus is, is high above everything and everyone else. He's reminding us that Jesus is second to none in terms of his greatness. He's reminding us that, that everything is in subjection to the authority of Jesus, including the church, including us. I mean, Paul echoes that same kind of thought about the elevated view of Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, he says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus, given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, that's every, of those in heaven, those of the earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the same thought. And you read something like that and you go, well, if he is so powerful, if he is you know, in, in such a place of authority, then why is not everyone bowing their knees right now? Because he's given people grace in order to come to him, to, to bow the knee ahead of time. But we know that when one day when Christ returns, he will come not only to come and collect his saints, to collect believers, to take them with him to where he is. Not only will he be taking believers to heaven, but he will also be returning to judge his enemies. And I can tell you that one day, regardless, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. The only difference is that some will be on their knees in heaven. Some will be on their knees in eternal damnation. And so we always have that question in our mind, don't we? Which do we want to be? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You have and we have the opportunity to say that Jesus is Lord, that he is our master, that we will follow him. We have the opportunity for that in this life, to be able to do that willingly here in this life right now in order to have heaven awaiting us. But if we let that opportunity pass by, if we die, if Christ returns before that point, well then our knees will bow, but it will not be in the place of heaven. It will be in the place of hell. And so we want to think about that soberly, that just because God has given grace now for people to respond to the gospel, to trust that they are sinners and that they are deserving of hell, to recognize that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died to take the punishment for all of our sins, past, present, future. Giving us a moment to recognize that Jesus not only died, that he rose again from the dead, 
ascended into heaven, now giving opportunity for anyone to come to him, trusting in him like they would trust in a parachute. They will receive forgiveness. They will receive eternal life right here, right now. He is giving us opportunity to do that. But regardless of whether a person does that now or later, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ, what is he saying here? Well, in both passages, Paul has wanted to drive home that point. He's wanted to drive home that central idea that there is not a higher authority, a higher power in the universe than Jesus himself. And why is this important for us to understand? Well, firstly, think about this. Why is it important to understand that Jesus is the highest authority? Why, why, Why would Paul want illumination for that in our thinking? Well, think about it in the opposite kind of way. Think about what a terror it would be if the greatest authority in the world was not for you, but against you. Not, not a pleasant thought, is it? By all worldly standards, some might say that the United States of America is perhaps one of the greatest superpowers today in the world. Well, what if you knew that the United States what might be considered the greatest superpower, what, what if you knew that they were going to be using all of their resources, all of their military um, uh, uh, soldiers and, and recruits, what, what if you knew that they were, they were all using all that they had in order to get you? They were out to get you. They, they, they wanted you dead. They wanted you captured. How would, how would you feel about that? One of the greatest nations, one of the most powerful nations in the world was out to get you. I mean, that would be a terrifying thought, you know? You're not going to get any sleep tonight, I can tell you that. We know that this is exactly what happened in history with Saddam Hussein. When the United States made it their mission to utilise all their resources to try to hunt him down, and they did it for several months trying to find him, and when the United States military eventually found him, where did they find him? They didn't see him sitting in a place of prestige or pride. He wasn't sitting on a throne at all. They found Saddam Hussein in a tunnel, a dark tunnel. He was unkept. He was unshaven. He was malnourished. I mean, how horrible it must have been to be on the run from one of the world's greatest superpowers. But on the other hand, what if the, the world's greatest superpower was not against you? What if, what if it was actually for you? Think of what confidence you'd have. Think about what possibilities there would be. Think of what would be available to us if the, the one who, is, who has the greatest power, the greatest authority, is not against you. But he's for you. Well, in a similar way, Paul wants to remind us that in Christ, there is the greatest superpower, the highest authority of the universe. He is second to none. He is the highest of all. And friends, what confidence that that should give us that the one who has unlimited resources, the one who has unlimited authority, unlimited power, is the same one who is not against us, the one who is for us. The Christian walk, you see, is not always going to be easy. The Christian life is not always going to be pleasant. It's not always going to be the most comfortable. It's not always going to be a life without trials and without struggles. But what confidence we can have as Christians to know that the one who is most supreme is with us and for us and in us as believers. Well, as we bring this study now to a close... May the prayer of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian believers 
May that be a prayer that we adopt for ourselves. Wouldn't that be a good prayer to adopt for ourselves? Wouldn't it be a good prayer to pray for ourselves and for other people? May we grow in our understanding of God's plan. May we better understand the hope of his calling and what that means, the implications for that in the here and now. May we better understand God's inheritance in us and that we would walk worthy of that, live in confidence and light of that. May each of us grow in our understanding of God's power, that the very power of God that's working in each one of our lives as believers, transforming us from within. May each of us grow in our understanding of God's person, that Jesus Christ, the supreme ruler of all, is with us, he is for us, and he is in us. And what's more, all of these things are readily available to us right now. Kind of reminds me of the Bible commentator, Warren Wiersbe. He once spoke about a story and he talked about a wealthy art collector who he had an incredible, you know, an incredible, you know, array of, 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 art, of art that he had collected over, over time. And he talks about this art collector, this very wealthy art collector, reading about a very valuable piece of art. And when the man found out about this very valuable piece of art, he insisted that he must buy it. And that he would, you know, he, he must add that piece to his collection. It was so valuable to him. And so what he did is he sent out an agent and he asked that agent to go and you know, go around and scan out the whole world, find that piece of art, find who owns it, and you pay whatever price he said in order to get that piece of art. And for, for many months, that agent went around the world trying to find out, trying to go and, 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 and call upon his connections to try to find this valuable piece of art, only to return back to the man and report that, sir... That piece of art already belongs to you. And what's more, it's been stored in your warehouse for many, many years. And in a similar way, sometimes as believers, we can mistakenly find ourselves on a quest looking elsewhere, looking elsewhere for something more for our Christian life. Maybe it's more power. Maybe it's more blessing. Maybe it's more hope or, or confidence or meaning. We go looking elsewhere. When all along... What we are reminded of in Ephesians chapter 1 is that God has already granted to us everything that we need in Christ Jesus. And so for us as believers, it's not a case of us needing to to look around elsewhere as though something were missing from our lives, but instead it's a case of asking God to turn up the dimmer light, to illuminate our thinking so that we might see clearly the riches that we already possess In Christ Jesus. May this be true for us. And with this in mind, let's just close now with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you for the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that more and more that these things that we've looked at today would be be ever increasingly present within our lives. That we would understand your plan more and that we would respond accordingly. That we would recognize your power and again, that would give us the hope and, and, and assurance for now and for the future. And that we would also recognize the greatness of Christ, the greatness of his person, that the greatest one who is elevated so high is for us, is with us, and who is in us. 
Who can be against us if God is for us, your word says. And so help us to remind, remind us of these things. Help us to spare us, Lord. Spare us from having to think that we're somehow deficient in our Christian walks, that we need to look elsewhere outside of the ordinary means that you've given to us. But help us to, to pray as Paul is praying here, that we would, would recognise what is already given, what we already possess, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.